News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, let's talk about some UFOs this morning. Because when you see a headline like more than 350 new UFO sightings have been added to government records, you really want to know more about what is going on. And the fact that I read that in Smithsonian Magazine, too, you go, all right, well, this is legit. And why is the U.S. government suddenly so talkative about UFOs when for years and years they would never say a word about it? Let's dig into this, shall we? Chris Rutkowski joins us now, a UFOologist and author of Canada's UFOs Declassified. Chris, thanks for being back with us. Glad to be here. Thanks. Can you help us figure this out? Why are there suddenly so many new UFO sightings that the U.S. government is talking about? Well, you know, to break it down, um, the uh, U.S. government uh, told uh, service personnel to report them. And that's quite different than in previous years where, uh, you know, people were worried about their reputations and their careers if they talked about UFOs because of a stigma that was attached to it. And so in uh, 2021, uh, the United States government, the Pentagon said, you know, we want to hear from service personnel who have seen UFOs or unidentified aerial phenomena, the UAPs as they're calling them now. And so what happened was that they started reporting them. And um, uh, and although they, they're being categorized as new, uh, a lot of these are actually old. In fact, uh, out of the 300 or so that were recently reported, uh, about uh, you know, 100, and 100 or so uh, are from before 2021, and about 250 are between the 2021 and a cutoff date in 2022, so over 18 months or so. And not all of those are new, new as in just happened during that past 18 months. So some of them are dating back quite a bit further as well. So, you know, it's uh, they're new in the sense that they've just received them, and uh, but the U.S. Uh, asked for it. That's what they got. Okay, that's interesting. So does it also tell you that people never forget this, right? If they see something, they've obviously held on to it. They wanted to report it. Absolutely. You know, if you see a UFO... And it sometimes changes your life because if your worldview is that such things don't exist and you see something that really doesn't look like it belongs, that can really uh, rock your world. So what can we classify what these were? Did, did they sound similar? Like, what are they reporting? Well, that's the problem with this report. In fact, it gives very, very little detail. In fact, less detail than the original report did back in 2021. Um, we do know uh, that they said out of the 350-ish uh, newly identified reports, as they say, they uh, half of them had unusual characteristics, half of them had very strange characteristics, uh, and uh, uh, of those, uh, some were characterized as uh, drones, some were balloons, and some were sort of radar glitches. But they don't actually say how many were things like mm, stars, other aircraft, Starlink satellites. So we don't really have the full picture, and that's what's so perplexing here that we don't really have a good picture of what was seen and even of those they say you know we're not entirely sure what the remainder were were it's like you know if you're standing on a street corner and you you know happen to unfortunately see someone get hit by a car uh, you know somebody says well did you see what kind of car it was uh, who was driving what was the license plate what color was it what make of model and you might not have caught that because you're so focused on uh, helping the person that doesn't mean that the person was run over by an elephant or a, or a, you know, a flying uh, refrigerator. It simply means that uh, you know, the, the, the object that, that caused this uh, was unidentified in the sense that you don't know exactly what it was. And that's what a lot of these cases are. They couldn't say whether these things were planes or, or, or right. balloons or whatever. They was simply, we don't know what they were. So, so we have an increase in the quantity of information, but not the quality of the information. Exactly. In fact, the, the report goes on to say that's one of the biggest problems with this. What it does say is that military personnel, and, that, and that's all that uh, we're reporting, these military personnel themselves are seeing and reporting uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, which is quite remarkable when you think about it, because, uh, you know, this isn't just uh, you or me, the person uh, down the street at the grocery store. This is you know, These are people who are, in some cases, are very qualified. They have experience in seeing what's in the sky, sometimes pilots with, you know, 10,000 hours in the sky. 
so they, you'd think that they would know what was in the air at the time and would be able to identify them. So it's actually quite significant that so many military personnel are coming forward and saying they've seen something. Right. And so I know that NASA is also looking into this, right? Yeah, although NASA has a completely different um, uh, program in place, and uh, the two are, are actually not really talking to each other all that much. We hope that they will eventually, but uh, NASA has, has taken an interest for the first time in a long time, too. And you know, while this was uh, reported through American, uh, this, this American task force, Canadians are, are involved, too, especially if you can imagine if this was... Uh, a series of reports from military personnel all around the world, which we think they are, there would be Canadian reports in there as well. We're curious just to find out what Canadian military personnel have been seeing. Uh, we do know that pilots continue to report seeing UFOs uh, in Canadian skies. As a matter of fact, uh, a report uh, came through uh, NAV Canada just last night, as a matter of fact, that a pilot uh, flying between Labrador and uh, the Rock um, uh, reported seeing unusual lights uh, in the sky and reported it through Transport Canada and eventually made its way to NORAD. So, you know, even this year, just a, a week ago, uh, pilots uh, in, uh, in Canadian skies are reporting UFOs. And so it's becoming more and more common, and hopefully we'll get enough data we can make some sense of what's going on. Yeah, so what do you make of all the information? Like, you've been studying UFOs for years. Has anything, has anything answered that you've seen answered any questions for you or have you think, Oh, okay, finally. <laughs> no, we don't have uh, the final answers uh, quite yet. Um, we just don't have the data. I mean, somebody has the data, the United States Pentagon probably has the data, but they didn't release it in this unclassified version of the, uh, of the report. And there is a, a classified version that supposedly people are chasing down right now, but we don't know, you know, how many cases occurred in, you know, New York versus California. How many cases occurred at 11 o'clock at night versus 11 o'clock in the uh, in the morning? Uh, were things red, purple, or green? Uh, what were the shapes involved? Uh, who exactly were reporting these things? And were they seen with binoculars or on radar or, or whatever? We don't have that data. And without that data, it's really hard to make any kind of assessment. So what we're looking for is some clarification. We're hoping that we'll get more information over the coming years. Um, and uh, maybe, you know, we can finally put some of this to rest. We know in Canada we have somewhere between 700 and 1,000 UFO reports every year, um, and that those come from uh, military personnel as well as pilots and, uh, and civilians. So we're, you know, we're, we're hanging in there as far as uh, UFO reports go. Well, you know what, that's what keeps people hanging on, right? Waiting for that, that final piece of information. Chris, thanks so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Bulls at work for 2023. What are yours? Well, for a lot of people, it's about you know, managing the workload better. A recent LinkedIn survey showed that almost a quarter of Canadian workers they asked said they would like to move to a four-day work week in 2023. Now, I know a lot of people would like to do that, but what are some of the things that we need to think about to make that happen? What about for employers too, right? How does that work for everybody? Well, joining us now is Evangeline Barubi, who's a Vice President of Strategic Accounts at Robert Half Canada. Evangeline, thank you for being with us. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. Thank you for having me. So this seems like something quite desirable for a lot of people, but it seems like it's been that way for a long time. Why hasn't there been more progress on this, do you think? Probably because, you know, traditionally uh, organizations have really wanted to look at that five-day work week. It's, I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, kind of doing what we've always done. But, you know, since the pandemic, there's been a, a much uh, greater push from employees to want flexibility. And, you know, given the talent shortage, or organizations are starting to see that they have to really start looking at ways to retain and attract top talent. And this is one of the, the top ways. And so what are you hearing from, like, senior managers? And, and when you do surveys, are managers and employers willing to try this out? Yes. Well, in a recent survey that we did, we actually saw 91% of senior managers in Canada would support a four-day work week, which is, I, to be honest, I was surprised it was that high. Yeah. So why do they think that their company is actually going to do it? I think, um, you know, like another uh, question that we asked is, do they anticipate that they'll do this transition 
uh, within the next five years. And we actually saw 69% saying yes. Um, but really what I think what it comes down to is, is they're looking at flexibility. So whether it be a four-day work week or some variation thereof of, you know, giving people flex time within their schedules, I think organizations are committed to looking at that. And, and some are already doing it. And what do you think the benefits are of doing it? Well, definitely the benefits to, um, to organizations and employees is for employees, it helps them build their schedule that works best for them and their family, which, again, is really, really important. And people have definitely highlighted that uh, coming out of the pandemic. Um, but it also can increase employee engagement, productivity, helps with retention, which is so critical right now. And then also, again, uh, another critical point, it helps attract top talent. Okay. Now, if you're a manager or an employer considering doing this, what what kind of questions should you consider? Well, absolutely. I guess as you're working through how do you make this work is you need to start looking at workloads um, and and tasks that each of your team are doing um, to ensure that the work is still going to get done and that, you know, by compressing it into four days and asking people to maybe work an extra hour, Is it possible? So you may have to shuffle a few things. You may have to look at different expectations around um, when things get done. And uh, then you also have to just look at the scheduling side of it. You know, um, in a previous role, I worked a four-day work week. And, you know, people had the option to take Monday or Friday off so that there was always people in the office five days a week to answer calls from clients and customers. Um, So... Those are all kind of considerations that you kind of have to work through as a team. Right, because you, you can't, you have to make sure your work is handed off, right? Like if you're the employee taking that day off that or going to a four-day work week, you still have to make sure that everything is covered. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and a lot of people actually said to us that, you know, they would actually, like 78% said they'd have no problem unplugging on that extra day off. Um, so you definitely need to make sure that people have the ability to do that because that has always been one of the concerns with a four-day work week is that people end up working on the fifth day anyways. Um, so you really have to work hard on, on scheduling appropriately. All right, sounds good. Evangeline, thank you so much for that this morning. Oh, not a problem. Have a great day. You too. That's Evangeline Brube, who's a vice president of strategic accounts at Robert Half Canada, talking about a survey they did in conjunction with LinkedIn and where they asked people about the four-day work week. And it turns out they found about 23% of the workers they talked to said they hope their work resolution for 2023 is to transition to a four-day work week. Now, is that something that you would like to do? Would your employer work towards that? This is Mornings with Simi. Very interesting Vancouver City Council meeting that they had yesterday. So they were presented with the first draft of what looks like it's going to be an 18-month process of planning for a revitalization of Granville Street. I know, I know. If you're like me, you think... Haven't we been here before? We have. We have tried this many times. So I'm very curious to know about what's going to be different with this particular process. Uh, That was one thing. But then the ABC Majority Council also voted to eliminate the renter's office within the city of Vancouver. And boy, that is not sitting well with some of their colleagues on council. So joining us now to talk about both of these issues is Vancouver Green City Councillor Pete Fry. Thanks for being with us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. You're throwing me a bit of a curveball, just like ABC did on the the renter's office. I didn't know we were going to talk about that this morning, but yeah. I've seen you talking about this, and that's kind of why I I thought, okay, we should talk about this while we have you here, too. So let's just start with that. Like, what do you mean curveball? What happened? Well, this has been sort of a trend with with Ken Sim and his team of late. They're throwing in pretty significant amendments and changes uh, with very little or no notice to uh, the other councillors. And um, I'm not sure to what extent they're even giving notice to staff. And these are some pretty significant changes that don't have an opportunity for often going, you know, for for thorough review and often going against staff recommendations. As we saw last night with the renter's office, they ignored staff recommendations, came up with their their own ideas and uh, passed it as a majority will and can. And similarly with the the Granville... uh, planning program they uh inexplicably referred that uh to another date oh okay so that were you expecting to vote on that the granville entertainment plan i i I was yeah yeah 
I mean, I think there's, there's you know, on, on the Granville Entertainment Plan, I think we all recognize that Granville Street does need a bit of a, a refresh. And so this is a plan that, that you know, captures a, a planning area from Robson to Drake uh, and looks at, it kind of divides it into three little chunks and looks at, at opportunities for how we thoughtfully redevelop it, access to the light, neon signage bylaws, washrooms for the public, uh, you know, facilitating the kind of entertainment uh, businesses and and I think what we're what's different now is that we have a different um, mindset at, at at council around I think the specific area that we're calling K three which is between Helmkin and Drake uh, that was previously by the last mayor being targeted for residential development and I and I and I and I probably think that most of us myself included don't think that that's the place for residential development. Okay, so you think that's going to change us? And then why put this off? Is there more discussion that's going to happen on this now? I, well, I don't know. I, I don't. The, the, there was no explanation from the ABC team. They just sort of did it, and I would assume, based on the sort of trends that we've seen on issues like the renter's office, that they've got something that, that they've decided they want to do, and hmm. they'll, they'll let us know when they let us know. Okay, I'll, I'll start with the renter's office in here. So, what is that exactly? So, we established the renter's office in 2018, uh, recognizing that that obviously in the city of Vancouver. Uh, we have extraordinary low vacancy rates. Um, we have a population about 55%, well over 300,000 people in the city of Vancouver rent. Uh, we have the highest rents in the country, and 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 they're feeling a lot of pressure. And we increasingly saw an intersection between uh, issues that renters were facing and issues that were within our purview as a city. Uh, so, you know, issues around bogus rent evictions and weird fixed-term tenancies and conversions from rental apartments into Airbnbs. All these are, are areas within our own kind of uh, realm that we felt that we could address better, uh, certainly when it comes to the permitting and licensing of, of rent evictions. Those are 100% City of Vancouver roles. There aren't a lot of resources otherwise out there for renters. We have the Tenant Resource uh, Action Center, TRAC, uh, First United, um, and then, of course, the op- options to appeal to the Resident Tenancy Board of the province. But those are all under-resourced and oversubscribed, and as any tenant who's tried to appeal um, a, a bad faith eviction or rent eviction or an unscrupulous landlord, uh, it, it's it's tough. And so we recognized a need to support the residents in our city that rent and that are increasingly in crisis in a housing crisis, and that's that was the sort of motivation for creating the renter's office in the first place. Staff were recommending a continuation of that and, a, and an expansion into a physical space to co-locate with with TRAC and potentially the Vancouver Rent Bank, which is a, a, a lending outfit that uh, if you're if you're short rent, you can borrow, uh, get a, a no interest long term loan to uh, stave off eviction. So these are all great outside uh, options that are also similarly you know under resourced and oversubscribed. So we thought we could also support those through the creation of the office. Uh, the physical office. So ABC did not vote to kill the physical office. They did, however, vote to uh, not continue uh, against staff recommendation to endorse. They voted to discontinue the renter's office and find some other as yet unnamed outside organization to take it over. Okay, what was their justification for that? Well, that was the the sort of head-scratcher because they, they talked about stuff about sticking to our lane and efficiency and funding and value for taxpayers. I'd argue that, that this is good value for taxpayers. I mean, Ken's team just last month, um, you know, suggested an unbudgeted $8 million to get out of our lane and start hiring nurses uh, with no budget, with no estimate of costs, but they've committed $8 million out of our out of our emergency contingency budget to, to pay for it. Um, which to me is incredibly reckless and is most definitely not in our lane and arguably isn't adding value for taxpayers. So I'm not really sure. I, I, I can, I don't know who's pulling the strings on, on that decision, but it's certainly not the folks who rent in the city of Vancouver. Hmm. Okay. So it sounds like there's a lot of stuff coming up at council these days that's not fully communicated. Let's put it that way. No, and I think it's 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 concerning given that you know normally in Vancouver we we pass our our year budget in December, um, so we have a, a fresh start for the January first year. Um, in a rather unprecedented move, uh, Ken Sims' team have decided that uh, they're going to wait that one out and 
they won't be passing a budget uh, until March. So statutorily, the Vancouver Charter allows us to pass a, a budget for April 1st. So what this suggests, though, because they have committed you know, quite a lot of money to policing and, as mentioned, uh, to paying uh, to taking over the provincial responsibility for mental health nurses. Um, so there is uh, a sense of dread, I think, about what they're going to cut to pay for this, because this is a party that's you know, also committed to lowering taxes. Um, you know, when you, the Vancouver Police Board, for instance, is asking for $20 million in increased funding this in this budget, and that's got to come from somewhere, and that's going to come from taxpayers. Uh, we have arbitrated, you know, wage and negotiated wage increases for all our unionized employees. That's going to have to come from somewhere. So I don't know where these cuts are going to come from, and I think we're a little nervous that they're going to come very last minute out of left field without a real opportunity for the public to understand what they're doing until they've done it. What is the process, though, for councillors being involved in the budget process? Like, are you just going to see the budget for the first time? Uh, no, no, no. We've we've seen what staff have recommended, but as we've seen from ABC, they're not necessarily going to listen to staff recommendations, and they're going to do what they're going to do. So the likely outcome will be they will introduce uh, a set of amendments uh, at the time of approving the budget, and we'll see them when we see them. And then I guess we'll be talking to you about that, too. So listen, thank you for joining us this morning. Hey, my pleasure, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor for the Green Party, talking about concerns, about things past, things not past. Thought they were going to vote on the Granville Street kind of revitalization project. That didn't happen. That got pushed off. What they did vote on, he said, was something they were not expecting, and that is the ABC majority voting to cancel the renter's office that the City of Vancouver has. Now, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Interesting stuff going on at the City of Vancouver these days. This is Mornings with Simi. That's a terrifying story uh, out of Ontario, actually. A couple of different cases where homeowners found either their house was listed for sale without them knowing about it. In one case, uh, the home was actually sold without the homeowners knowing about it. How can you prevent something like this from happening? Well, joining us now is Simone Lee, president of the Better Business Bureau here in BC. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. These stories are scary, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, everybody, uh, we all spend so much money on our property to to go away and then find out that potentially your property has been sold without uh, your knowledge is terrifying. Um, And that's why, you know, we wanted to take the time, especially when we've heard about these cases in Ontario, to really uh, give some proactive information to people who are concerned. Yeah, I did wonder when I read about these, wait a minute, how could this happen? Like, wouldn't wouldn't any real estate agent just run a check, like a, a land title check to confirm before they list a house for sale? Yeah, I mean, there is a due diligence process that um, real estate agents and, and lawyers are supposed to follow. Um, and it is it is relatively rare, um, but there is a possibility of it having happening, especially if um, scam artists, as you know, grab your identity and can make for, uh, forged documents. Right. Okay. So what kind of steps can we take then to protect ourselves on this? Well, we always talk about um, really your identity being one of your most important um, assets to protect. I mean, I'm always talking about how free we are with our information. And so we always um, really want people to think about treating your own personal information like gold and doing things like basic things, such as making sure you're shredding your documents, things that have your bank account numbers on it, social insurance numbers, um, don't just give information away. I mean, a lot of people um, really are free with information, especially on social media. So I would just tell people to be very cautious about what information they're providing and don't let scammers have access to it. Right. And what, what is title insurance? So title insurance is, is insurance that protects you on uh, your title. Uh, the title is obviously the document that is attached to your property. And so really when you buy a home, you're really buying that title. And so insurance is something that can offer some you know, safety for you if there has been some sort of fraud. So, right. Okay. So I get that. But you have to have that separately then from all your other insurance? Yes, it's an additional insurance that you would purchase that offers you that kind of protection. I mean, the good news in BC is that the land title um, office also provides an assurance fund. So if there is some sort of fraud, uh, you know, they have a fund that you can apply for, but sometimes it can take time. 
So title insurance offers you some additional value if there is a fraudulent situation in your own property. So this just goes beyond, like when we think about identity theft, we think about, yeah. you know, people buying things on your credit cards and stuff like that. But this is the the really ultimate extreme scary part of identity theft, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, nobody wants to think that someone's taken their identity and, and bought, like I said, I mean, your home, we know how expensive the real estate market in BC, so the thought of losing your home is terrifying. Okay, so what else should people do? We always want people to do, again, going back to the tips on how to protect yourself against identity theft, you know, check your credit reports to see if there has been any signs of unusual activity. Um, So there's two credit bureaus in Canada, Equifax and TransUnion, and and you have the ability there to go in, check out, see what kind of information is there and see if someone has recently looked at your credit history without your knowledge. I mean, that right there is a red flag. Oh, so you can check that. You can see who else has looked at it. Absolutely. And if you find something there, um, you can alert them right away. And that's that's very important. We would say that that's that's critical. Uh, We also want you to continue to look at your bank account statements, look for your credit card statements. I mean, you know, often we get the mail and we might ignore it. uh, But this is a really good time to see. Uh, For example, if you don't get your bill, that might be very suspicious in itself because it may have been redirected. Right. So that's a good idea then for people to get that online or always check it online, I guess. Well, and you would think, uh, you know, some people are reluctant to do things online because they still think, well, what if my information is hacked? Uh, But the sooner you can find something that's unusual, the better. And so that kind of is a a really good way of just, you know, cutting down that unnecessary mail that could be stolen and then being able to look at the information as it's happening live. Oh, boy, the things we have to worry about these days. (laughs) I know. Another really interesting thing is that the um, the land titles office also has an alert system. So if there has been some sort of, um, you know, inquiry into your title, you can sign up for their alert. And then that can give you some sense of what's going on as well. Oh, that's a good idea. You know what? I might just do that. Simone, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Simone Lees, president of the Better Business Bureau of Mainland BC, talking about protecting yourself uh, from getting your property scammed right out from under you. This has actually happened in Ontario, a couple of very high profile cases that is all the talk right now in Southern Ontario. And yeah, some of these actions are pretty scary when you think the lengths that scammers will go to these days. This is Mornings with Simi. Royal BC Museum wants to hear from you. Yes, that's right. They are asking the public to weigh in on future redevelopment of the museum. There's a lot to talk about here, isn't there? So Lisa Dubois joins us now, CEO of the Royal BC Museum. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. I appreciate it. Is this process already underway? Yes, it is. We are one week into um, engagement. We've had three sessions in the museum itself and Um, We are going to continue those sessions over the next week and then begin our way across the province, which is exciting. Okay, yeah, so how, where will you be going then to talk to people? Well, we'll be going to all of the various regions. We will start on the island and then make our way to Vancouver and the Vancouver region. We will also go to the Okanagan and the Kootenai region, as well as the north and eastern um, west parts of the province. So we'll be in a number of municipalities in addition to holding multicultural and Indigenous sessions. Okay, and why why did you feel it was important to get out there? I know that everybody thinks that, yeah, this is long overdue. Uh, how did you come to that decision to take this everywhere to talk to people? Well, it's at the end of the day, the museum is a museum for the province. And there's a lot of questions about what modern museums ought to resemble. And for us, it's a very timely um, event and initiative, and it's one that we don't want to be viewed as short-term. This is our opportunity to be out and creating impactful relationships that will allow us to co-create exhibits within the museum, no matter what that form um, takes, so that community can remain authority over their own storytelling and the museum can take a much more facilitative role, therefore ensuring that more of British Columbians are going to A, see themselves within the museum, but also have more relevant interactions with the museum in their own space. 
So part of this exercise is also understanding how we can be more relevant partners to British Columbians in other areas of the province by virtue of our education programming and also our partnerships with uh, with various institutions and organizations within those municipalities and communities. Right. It's been a bit of a challenging year, though, the last year, hasn't it, when it comes to the museum and that relationship with the public? It's been a very interesting year. Um, and, you know, there's um, a number of challenges that, of course, have popped up that we weren't anticipating. But at the end of the day, this work is actually where the real opportunity lies. I know that there's been lots of conversation about, you know, how do you bring people along? There are things at the museum that people love. But at the end of the way, at the end of the day, the only way we're going to actually be successful in bringing people along is through conversation and showing up genuinely and with integrity and by building trust and really opening our ears to hear the diverse voices of the province. And you're right in that there are some exhibits there that people love, for instance, that old town exhibit that people thought because of communication from the museum was going to be destroyed. And yet it's not like what happened there? What, what was the miscommunication there? Well, number one, the, the, the communication from the museum was never that the old town was going to be destroyed. We actually can't do that with, without closing because of all of the asbestos in it. So the, the structure of Old Town is there. Um, the, the actual storefronts, et cetera, remain. A lot of the props and artifacts have been painstakingly and very carefully packed up and stored. But that's so that this engagement process can help us to inform how best to tell that fulsome history of the province. And in the event we're told we're going to stay in this building, then we will be looking to reimagine that space. If we're told that the province wants a new building, then we will be still using all of the information and the relationships that we gather through this process in order to reimagine a new space, but still with the purpose of telling a much more fulsome, inclusive story of the province, both from a human history and a natural history. There's a lot of updating to do with respect to our um, exhibit around climate change. As it stands, it ends at 1999. So, you know, we need to, in order to continue to be an educational institution and inspire innovation and spark meaningful conversations, we need to start reimagining some of these long-standing core exhibitions, no matter what the structure looks like. So can you foresee a future exhibit that would still include parts of that exhibit? Yes. Um, I think that the option or the opportunity for us is actually just to tell the story in a different way that highlights really important moments in time for our province. So it's, it's not about creating divisiveness. It's actually about creating an integrative approach, a much more mosaic approach to the storytelling that goes on in the in the museum. And while all of this is happening, what I really want to emphasize is it's not shutting down. The province is not losing its museum. We are continuing to develop learning programs that will go across the province. We have very exciting exhibitions that are coming, including through the T-Rex exhibit from um, the Field Museum in Chicago, which you know, includes the largest, most intact T-Rex fossil that's ever been found. It stands 13 feet tall. And so, you know, this is an opportunity, and that's going to be on the third floor. It's an opportunity for us to keep the museum alive while also engaging the public and therefore really informing our way forward in a meaningful way. And what is the timeline like then to make those kinds of changes that you're talking about to better reflect today? What is the timeline like? That's a very complex question. And unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you. I mean, we're giving ourselves a certain amount of time. We're going into these engagement sessions to begin with. And a lot of that is going to be about just rebuilding trust and building new relationships and opening new doors to new, to, to new audiences. But at the same time, what we know we're going to hear at first is a lot of the voices that really feel strong and able to speak their mind. 
some of the most important voices in this idea of being diverse and inclusive are in fact marginalized voices and they don't necessarily feel that they have the standing or they don't necessarily feel that when they have spoken before that they've been heard. So there's going to be a certain degree of being patient with moving at the pace of trust and ensuring that we're leaving all of the province and all of the different communities enough time to have conversation with us, digest what they've heard, build a relationship with us, and then hopefully feel that they can be safe enough to be able to have conversations about what for them can be a very challenging and hurtful past. So we have to be patient about it. And unfortunately, I can't give everybody a very hard timeline. But in order for this to be an authentic process, we do need to leave space for that. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks. I really appreciate it. That's Alicia Dubois, who's the CEO of the Royal BC Museum, talking about the process they are going to undertake for, I guess you could call it revitalization, reimagining of the way it tells the story of our province. If on a way in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. There's always been people who you could like pay to write the essay for you. So in some sense, this kind of idea has been there all, all along. But what's neat about this is it does it so fast. In 30 seconds, the student can get an essay, and it's so stinking good. Oh, boy. Remember that conversation? That was just a couple of days ago we had here on the show. That was Anthony Alman, who's a professor of philosophy at Northern Michigan University, talking about the latest technology in chatbots. It's called Chatbot GPT. It is sweeping the academic world by storm because in a matter of, what, six weeks, seven weeks, it has become so widespread, so widely used, and it's so good at writing essays. It's just, you know, helping people out, writing resumes, cover letters, you name it. It is everywhere. So this has become an increasing issue for post-secondary institutions. How do you do this? And and wh- how deeply do you get involved in changing you know, the curriculum, your standards, your syllabus, because you know this is out there and students are using it? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Jason Weens, who's a professor of English at the University of Calgary. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Good morning. Have you had some of your students using this, or have you come across this chatbot GPT? I'm actually on sabbatical this year, so I'm not. I'm not teaching. Um, I've uh, spoken to colleagues, and they haven't uh, seen any of this use in their classes yet that they're aware of. Right. So, is this increasing use of AI and chatbots a concern uh, in post-secondary institutions? I think it will be. Uh, I, I right now I've I've been running some prompts through the uh, the app myself, and the essays it's generating are not really at, at a post-secondary level. I'd say they're at um, a high school level, but of course the AI is improving exponentially, and I imagine it will be uh, sooner sooner rather than later uh, producing essays that um, are at a university level. So what is what are the ethical implications here, Dr. Weens? Because certainly students get help with essays all the time, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, we we need to be careful not to. Um, you know, panic here about this. Um, as I think I, the clip that you played before I came on, uh, the professor said, uh, students have been getting help. Uh, the internet's been available uh, to them. If they want to find ideas for essays, they can simply uh, Google it. Um, in fact, I think that w- what we'll need to be thinking about will be ways to uh, creatively use this technology to to teach the students how to write better. Uh, for example, um, the essay, the, the chat GPT could generate, um, as I say, um, an essay that's not really at the university level and students could be asked to explain why and then to revise or edit it and, and thereby hone their uh, revision or editing skills, for example. It could also be used, I think, to uh, teach, say, education students um, to generate essays that they could then mark, assess and, and, and practice their own sort of assessment skills. So there are, I think, ways ways that the technology could be used uh, creatively um, in, in assessments and, right. not, and not just be a concern for, uh, for academic misconduct. Right. But you also make a great point there in that this has to, we have to start discussing this, right? Like I think uh, yes. professors, lecturers, you have to start developing your guidelines in using this. Yes. Yes. I think pr- professors are going to be developing guidelines on a sort of ad hoc 
uh, basis uh, right now in the classrooms, but then institutions, universities, and colleges are going to need to develop uh, academic um, you know, integrity policy with this, uh, this in mind as well. I guess this does happen every once in a while where a technology comes along. Have you had concerns about like the use of too much technology by your students? Well, I mean, it's yes, I think so. Uh, to some to some extent, you know, you can assign an essay and and ask students to sort of research in the traditional way that is locate um, articles, books, peer reviewed research. But you know that you know the first place a lot of students are going to go will be you know search engines on on um, on the internet. Um, but at the same time, you know the world in which they are going to graduate. Uh, into and you know the workplace environment that they'll be working in will be making use of <laughs> of the internet and and of uh, of AI technologies and so it's it's important for them to learn how to um, use these tools uh, ethically and and productively I think right now you're an English professor so don't you mm-hmm. need to know what someone's actual writing skills are and not what they got <laughs> some help with. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there's always, there's, you know, so since the advent of the internet, we, in most courses, uh, we would have, you know, in-class invigilated writing assessments to make sure uh, that's the only way you can actually make sure that students are actually producing the writing that they, that they are. Um, Because of course, um, you know, uh, you've been able to download essays or, or pay for, for essays, even before the advent of the internet, you know, students could, could get other people to write essays for them. So in-person assessments have always been, um, you know, part of, of most English courses to make sure that uh, students are, in fact, literate in, in the language. Right. That's the concern, right? That you would have people <laughs> using this to really hide some, some of their, mask their own abilities, essentially. Yes, I think so. And, and the thing is also, you know, um, for a lot of students and for a lot of you know people in general, the hardest part of a writing is getting started. And um, what I, what I think ChatGPT can do right now is generate a kind of very rough draft uh, from which people can can work. And I think that would be an ethical question that you know English professors and all academics need to need to uh, decide or determine is actually an ethical breach. You know, getting a computer to generate a rough draft from which a student then um, you know, mold into their own. Right. So then it's it's, it's comparable in some ways to the calculator, right? When the calculator came on and what that did for, for math. Oh, and now a calculator is widely used. Yes. And it forced it, it, it it made, you know, math teachers and, and math uh, professors have to ask for sort of higher level, um, you know, uh, work uh, equations that weren't simply just arithmetic, right? They had to ask students to to engage with formula at a level that a calculator could not. And perhaps that's where we're going to go as the AI uh, writing technologies become more sophisticated. Right. So clearly things are going to have to change. But my question here, Dr. Wins, is do you see academia making strides towards those changes before this whole chatbot thing goes too far? (laughs) Well, that's the thing. uh, I'm a part of a research project at the University of Calgary to, you know, uh, gauge uh, people's understandings of what the technology can do and their attitudes towards the, its ethical use. And since ChatGPT came out, uh, <laughs> things are moving much faster than our research team, I think, is, has been able to uh, keep up with. We're kind of, uh, kind of scrambling. Um, so I think it's an urgent uh, matter for uh, universities to, uh, to develop policies around this technology. Uh, but, but to do so... Um, without uh, the kind of moral panic around around uh, what they can do. Right. I don't know if urgent and universities actually go together, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Dr. Weins, thanks for your time. Very good point. All right, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about stamps this morning, shall we? Why, you ask? Because it's an actual rare story, a rare event going on in the stamp community. There are one of only two mint condition versions of Canada's third ever produced postage stamp is going up for auction this weekend in Ottawa. This stamp was issued back in 1851 and boy is there excitement in the community over this. Joining us is Brian Grant Duff who's a collector at All Nations Stamp and Coin Vancouver. Good morning Brian. Good morning Simi. How rare is this? Well they only made about a, or only about 120 examples of the 12 penny black have survived 
It's one of the world's most fabled and desired stamps, so it's known as a world-class rarity. The example being sold in Ottawa by Sparks Auctions is one of only two never-hinged examples. Sparks sold a hinged example in 2017 for more than $300,000. So uh, the never-hinged version, which is one where the gum on the back has never been disturbed, the other one brought $425,000 in the U.S. in recent years. So uh, we should be seeing a record price for this stamp, and that's always exciting in the stamp community. Stamps enjoying a resurgence uh, due to COVID. People took up the hobby, and people doubled down on the hobby. And, of course, the Internet uh, continues to challenge us all, and it's much easier for people to bid on stamps online. So uh, people go to Stamp Auction Network and look at the 12-penny black and do their business. So, yes, big news in stamps. It sure sounds like it. First of all, thank you for explaining what never hinged means, because I did not know that. So that means that it's never been used, essentially. So the stamp is uncancelled. It has its full original gum, and no one ever mounted it in any way. So when you're collecting stamps, you have to figure out some way of holding them in a display, and this one somehow survived without being mounted, probably because it was part of a pair, and and the the other stamp in the pair was mounted, but this one wasn't. So it's essentially new from the post office. So just like it was printed in 1851, and just like all things, the the better condition the rocket firing Boba Fett figurine is in, the the more it's going to bring. Now, see, now you're speaking my language when you talk Boba Fett action figures. But let's talk about this. You said it's called the 12 Penny Black, and you said it's one of the rarest. Why? What makes it so exciting as a stamp? It's actually a very beautiful stamp, which I think is part of its allure. It depicts a young Queen Victoria looking rather winsome. It's a famous portrait called the Chalon portrait. And just in the black ink on the white background, it it really is a striking design. And and it's one of the world's most stable stamps. It's effectively the Mona Lisa of Canadian stamps. I, I think that's a fair comparison. Okay, and I understand that at the time, not many of them, like back in 1851, not many of them were actually sold. Is that right? Yeah, 12 pence was relatively a lot of money. The basic postal rate was three pence. And so it had to be a very heavy letter, probably banking correspondence going to the United States to to have to be rated with 12 pence. So not many were used. Not many were even effectively distributed to post offices, and and certainly the average person wasn't using them. So it's extraordinary that any survived because most of them were recalled and burned by the post office back in the day. And so, like I say, there's 100, maybe 120 examples known in varying conditions. There's only two mint pairs in private hands. There's only two used pairs in private hands, and there's only two never-hinged examples known, of which the one in Ottawa is one. Okay, so what, Brian, what makes a stamp collectible? Well, it's, it's like anything. It's supply, demand, and condition. And, and sometimes Canadian stamps capture the sort of world market as well, and this is one of them which is renowned around the world for its beauty and because it's one of the first issues of Canada back when we were a province in 1851, so it has sort of world demand and supply and demand condition effectively for a stamp you're looking for well-centered example framed like a picture and of course for mint stamps we also care about the state of the gum on the back which was what makes this one extraordinary and and it's beauty they're miniature pieces of art so the more attractive they are generally the more in demand they'll be. And of course, the scarcer they are, often the more in demand they'll be. Even ugly stamps that are very rare have great commercial value. So how did you get into this, Brian? How did you get such a passion for stamp collecting? I was actually in VGH for an extended period of time as a seven-year-old. And my grandmother would come and visit me every day and give me comic books. And the nurses, of course, would take the comic books once I'd read them and give them to the other kids who were less privileged than I was. And so my grandmother, who, of course, was on a grandmother's budget, decided that maybe she should start giving me stamps and coins rather than comic books, and those would be less likely to be handed over to the other kids. And (laughs) I 
I started collecting, and I would go to the department store, coin and stamp shops, and the stamp shops downtown, and I would buy stamps by mail, and uh, eventually uh, became a stamp dealer at the age of 14, uh, mailing stamps to my stamp collecting friends and trying to convince them to buy some from my price list. And then at the age of 18, I started working for a local auction house called Eaton and Sons, and I ended up uh, working with their operations in both Toronto and Vancouver. When they wound up, I ended up running uh, department store locations and then took over all nation stamp and coin. So you, you really fell for it. Like, I know, yes. It's a great story because I think that's how so many people's collections start. Somebody gives them something and next thing they know they're collecting it, but you've turned it into a lifelong passion. I, I've been very lucky. It's all I've ever done so far. Is there something in your collection that you're still waiting to add? Is there something out there that you go, boy, I really I, wish I could put this there? I, I'd love to handle one of the inverted Jenny upside-down airplane stamps from the U.S. I haven't done that yet. Okay, what is that? Can you explain it? it, it sure. It's a 1924 uh, 24-cent airplane stamp where a guy went to the post office and discovered that because it was in two colors, the center was printed upside-down. So it, it has a similar value to this 12-penny black and it is prized around the world because it's a, an upside-down airplane error. And so how many of those are there? A similar quantity, a couple of hundred. Right. So this must be, do you, do you search out stamps worldwide? Like how often do you get to add to your collection? Because it sounds like it can be an expensive hobby. It, it doesn't have to be. One of the great things about stamps is most people have some. And so if you're interested, you just tell people, hey, I'm interested in stamps. And, and they'll give you some and that will get you started. And you can collect by topic as well. So for Canadian stamps, obviously, everyone needs the third issue, and that's what makes the uh, the 12 Penny Black newsworthy to Canadian collectors, is we all need to put it in our collection. But uh, I'm very lucky in that stamps tend to come to me, because I've been doing this for 40 years. People contact me from everywhere all the time and say, hey, what about this? So will you be keeping an eye on this auction this weekend? Absolutely. I, I would like to see it set a record price. And uh, I would like to see it approach the, the similar value for the U.S. stamp. It's great when Canadian stamps are sold in Canada rather than having to go to New York or London or Switzerland. And it's great when Canadian stamps stay in Canada. So I'm hoping it will sell for a good price to a Canadian buyer and stay in Canada. Well, we'll see what happens. But Brian, thanks so much. I learned so much this morning. All right. Have great a good day. That's Bye-bye. Brian Grant Duff, who's a collector at All Nations Stamp and Coin in Vancouver. Uh, clearly passionate, but telling us all about this kind of special auction that is happening in Ottawa this weekend. One of only two mint conditions versions of this stamp, which was Canada's third ever produced. It was issued back in 1851. And as Brian told us, it's called the 12 Penny Black. It is one of the rarest and it is going up for sale and looks like it could be a record price for that. And I can see how during the pandemic, people definitely either took up stamp collecting or maybe you rediscovered it. If you want to share your hobby with me, because I do love it when people do that, simi at cknw.com.